throw on your battle vest and open this pit up because today we are going to thrash our way through the music of Metallica. Joining me are Associate Professor of Philosophy at the College of William and Mary, Chris Fryman. Thanks for having me. And Distinguished Service Professor of Philosophy at King's College, editor of the Blackwell Philosophy and Pop Culture series, and author of the new book, The Meaning of Metallica, Ride the Lyrics, Bill Irwin. Bill, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Landry. Good to be here. If I may, Bill, especially because I, I we actually had emailed you over a year ago at this point, probably 18 months ago, just being like, we'd love to get you on the show. We, we love your Blackwell uh, philosophy and pop culture series. Uh, and you said, well, I've got this book that I'm working on about Metallica. And we were like, Metallica, that's, you know, and, and it just, we never got around to it. But then I was like, you know what? The book is coming out. Stranger Things brings it back into the zeitgeist all of a sudden. They just they just used Enter Sandman on, I think, Westworld a week ago or so. So uh, why not do it now? It's, it's, it's a great time to talk about what Metallica can mean for us today and what we can, can learn from the lyrics. But I was curious, why Metallica, of all things, for this book? Because you seem like a guy who, based on your writings, is, you know, very well acquainted with not just... Metallica, but a lot of music and a lot of media and literature. So why Metallica, of all things? Well, Metallica has been the soundtrack of my life since uh, about 1984, when uh, Ride the Lightning came out. And uh, they've been therapy to me. They've been poetry. They've been philosophy. They've taken me through uh, teenage existential crisis. They've taken me through my midlife crisis. And uh, you know what? I started writing uh, about Metallica just in connection with this book, uh, Educated by Tara Westover. She was raised as sort of a fundamentalist uh, Mormon. And I was quoting from Metallica because uh, there are songs about, uh, about religion and James Hetfield was raised. Uh, James Hetfield, the lead singer and uh, chief lyricist, was raised as a Christian scientist. and it just sort of took on a life of its own, uh, the book. And, and the lyrics have just always uh, meant so much to me personally that uh, it, I, I just sort of had to do it uh, as a, a labor of love. And uh, hopefully uh, it, the book is a conversation starter uh, on the lyrics, certainly not a conversation ender. And Chris, knowing from the, your various Facebook posts, I, there are no Limp biscuit who I know is your favorite, but does Metallica <laughs> mean anything special to you? Uh, or is it emblematic of the genre? How did you come to appreciate them? Well, I was going to say, maybe we, we need to do a new episode on Limp Bizkit at some point. So put, put me down for that. <laughs> I'll put it uh, in the queue. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We'll have to go two hours, special edition. Um, yeah. So, so, I mean, my experience, I think, was was somewhat similar uh, although that's really interesting. I didn't know that about uh, James Hetfield being raised a Christian scientist. That's really, that's interesting. Uh, but just, uh, you know, in terms of my own experience, uh, I'm trying to remember what, some some mid-90s at some point in the mid-90s. Uh, I'm old enough to have uh, been a part of the generation that listened to music on cassette tapes. And I remember... Uh, it's, it's, it is funny. We've gone from cassette tapes to, to now purely digital within my lifetime. That's how far we've come. But I had, I want to say, four cassette tapes uh, at, a, at a certain stage of my life when I was really getting into metal. And two of them were Metallica. Uh, I, I believe Ride the Lightning and Master of Puppets. 
And so I would just, you know, as, as a kid does, just play it endlessly on repeat. And yeah, I just, I, I like the band. They've, you know, they've reinvented themselves multiple times. I pretty much like all the things that they do. I like, you know, uh, I like that they don't seem to be too deterred by the critics. Like they just, they just kind of do their own thing and they make the music that they want to make and they make people happy. And, you know, I've been listening to them for over 20 years now. I expect that I'll continue to be listening to them for uh, as long as I'm listening to music. So yeah, uh, Metallica and Libertarianism, what's not to like? Well, that's really an, the interesting thing is I, I was thinking about this and I was like, I mean, you could obviously do whole podcasts on Metallica. I'm sure they exist out there. But if there's one person who is going to be able to tie it into the, the things we usually talk about on this show, I know it was going to be you two. So what is emblematic about Metallica? Because I think my place in this conversation is very different because I am at best a casual Metallica fan. Uh, I My dad was, was very musical. He's a musician. My mother is very musical. They were into rock music and stuff. But they, they stopped just short of things that got that heavy. Like I, I was emailing Bill. I was like, we were, uh, when it got to, you know, heavy things, my dad uh, raised me in a Rush household rather than a Metallica household, which, you know, you get into the libertarian leaning lyrics there but it it wasn't quite you know the thrash of kill them all or anything like that um what is there for libertarians in metallica because i think there is some aesthetic reasons and you know the that type of genre has a lot of appreciation uh within the community but is there something more to it than just the sort of rebellious do-it-yourself aesthetic of heavy metal as a, as a genre or does metallic specifically do something special well you mentioned rush there landry so l let me pick up on that because i'm sure a lot of listeners to the podcast are rush fans very popular band uh in the libertarian community and there, there are some connections there with Rush. Uh, the, uh, the members of Metallica were all Rush fans. Uh, and in fact, they wanted Geddy Lee to be the producer of Master of Puppets, which is, uh, of course, uh, enjoying a renaissance at the time. And it almost happened. There was, uh, uh, it, they just couldn't get the timing right. And the, the song structure is actually uh, people who are only familiar with the uh, sort of simpler Metallica songs like Enter Sandman may not see this, but with a song like Master of Puppets coming into prominence again, the, the song structure is uh, pretty complicated. It, it's not perhaps at the level of uh, what you see in a lot of Rush songs, uh, but uh, once you get uh, in, from Master of Puppets and into Injustice for All, that's where they really uh, went very uh, far in the direction of progressive metal. And I think lyrically, uh, people who uh, find libertarian leanings uh, in Rush, which are certainly there, purposely so. I mean, uh, Neil Peart, uh, in particular, uh, a fan of Ayn Rand and Anthem and uh, the uh, the Fountainhead, very much that uh, that uh, aesthetic and that credo of doing things on our own terms. We're artists, and we're making. Uh, this art, and uh, as, as Chris had said uh, in the introduction, in, in some ways uh, not even caring very much about certainly what the critics say, and to some extent not even uh, what the fans would say. And I, I think ultimately what's there uh, that ties uh, Rush and, and Metallica and that has some libertarian appeal, aside from, as we'll get into, I'm sure, 
issues uh, that are specifically those of liberty and justice uh, and uh, anti-war. But aside from that, there's just a, a tremendous individualism uh, and a sense of individual responsibility and taking responsibility for one's own life and, and creating art that is authentic and genuinely reflects that. Yeah, I have to say I'm loving all of these little uh, interesting uh, bits of information. I had no idea about the the Getty Lee connection. That that's really cool. Um, yeah, and for me, it's it, I wouldn't even say it's it's so much uh, the lyrics, but more I don't know ethos or something like that, for lack of a better term. So I don't know. So Bill, you might you might be able to correct me if I'm wrong here, but I remember reading something about how uh, at one point, I guess in the '90s. Uh, Metallica heard a, a Soundgarden record and they loved it, and they said, "All right." And, and now we're 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 making Load, which was not a critically acclaimed album because it was, you know, it was it, it sounded like a little bit, you know, grungy like Soundgarden, um, and you know they they got a lot of uh, negative feedback on it, but but they did it because that's what they wanted to do, and then they did Reload, which was a similar sort of sound, and I just always kind of respected that ethos or that vibe, where they said. We, this is the music that we like. This is the music that we want to make. And, you know, if you like it, buy it. If you don't, don't. Uh, but but we're going to do things our way. And to me, that's always something that I've I've really respected and it's resonated with me. No, that that's right. Uh, that they've always done what they wanted to do. And uh, the Load albums were, were really disappointing to a lot of long-term fans, myself included at the time. I've since come to really appreciate them because metal itself was falling on hard times at that point. Little did I know uh, the you know almost meta double metaphor of, uh, of underground death metal uh, was really taking off as was the new wave of black metal uh, but I wasn't in touch with that but anything that was at all mainstream metal was basically pushed aside and we were hoping that Metallica was going to carry the flag for metal forward and we got something that really sounded a bit perhaps too much uh, of the time uh, with the alternative and, and grunge scene. But hell, that's what they wanted to do, and they did it. And uh, there's even a country song, Mama Said, on, uh, on Load, and, and hats off for them for doing whatever the hell they wanted. And they definitely didn't care what the critics said. It's never been about trying to please Rolling Stone or the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or any of those bullshit institutions. Uh, I think it did sting uh, when some fans uh, had some negative uh, reaction at various points. Uh, but even that, they, they've done what they've wanted to do. And, and certainly there's something admirable uh, about that uh, with the libertarian ethos, as Chris was saying. I like that country song. The album definitely grew, it grew on me too. At first, I was like, oh, I don't know about this, and then you know, over time, it uh, yeah, I started to to like, and I and I listen to it now. Uh, I, I, the other nice thing too is uh, my my son, my eight year old son, I'm getting him into it, and so he's more of like the load reload era, but it's given me a renewed appreciation for for that uh, that part of Metallica's timeline. Yeah, and, and Mama Said is a, is a great song, and it actually is directly inspired by, by his own mother's death. She died when he was 16 years old uh, because they were Christian scientists, essentially, and uh, she didn't take uh, medical treatment for cancer. And his father, who was a Christian scientist, 
had left the family. And so he was, in a sense, orphaned. His father wasn't dead, but he had to go live with an older brother. And uh, you really start to get on those reload, uh, load and reload albums, some very personal reflections that are coming in in a way that you didn't get quite as much early on. So just from my own curiosity, Bill, do you, do you know why he left Christian science? I, I assume that he did. Um, do, do you know why? What prompted that? Oh, well, I, I, th- I think after his mother died and he moved in uh, w- with his brother, he didn't darken the doors of any kind of church for a very long time. I mean, uh, he had had enough uh, of religion, right? And uh, it, there's lots of uh, anti-religious uh, uh, animus and, and songs, particularly on the, the early albums, right? Creeping Death is the retelling of the uh, the Exodus uh, story, the flight out of Egypt, and Leper Messiah really taking aim at the televangelists. And the song that, that's particularly about uh, the Christian scientist uh, upbringing is uh, The God That Failed off of the Black Album. Uh, so I think he took leave of uh, Christian scientists' uh, religion just because it had never made any sense to him. He had seen uh, the uh, the results of uh, of not, you know, taking modern medicine into account, it also limited him in a lot of ways. He had to uh, excuse himself from like health lessons in in high school. And uh, I think it kept him from playing uh, high school football because he didn't want to get injured uh, and, uh, and not, you know, do anything that would be proper for injury, or maybe they wouldn't even let him play if he, I I, I don't know, but it really, uh, it left a bad taste in his mouth. We've been talking about the sort of do-it-yourself ethos that the band had, mostly in a stylistic sense. They were the the tone of the albums, the production style, the structures of the song, um, and and that is very very potent and and recognizable um, when you look at the arc of their entire uh, discography. But it's interesting to look at them in sort of discrete periods, and I think. Bill, your book does this specifically because it is about the lyrics more than anything. It is, it's called Meaning of Italica, Ride the Lyrics, which is where a, a, a big part of the message of the band is, is really carried. There is the aesthetic power of heavy metal, but the stories that they are telling and the real nuance comes from the words that James Hetfield is, is writing. Um, and there's there are a lot of changes in the way that they're tackling their subjects from the you know classic early thrash teenage rebellion of Kill 'Em All, and then you're getting sort of institutional attacks in and Justice for All uh, and and stuff like that, and then you're moving on to a lot more sort of it's like a really nuanced kind of interpersonal conflict in some of the later albums as well. What do you make of the sort of almost flat out aggression and sort of attacking of institutions that goes on in the tone of the lyrics versus the sort of live and let live almost born out of this hippie ethos of the sort of post uh, Vietnam era? Like, where, how do those two things intersect? And it, it's a really interesting dynamic to me that they have, you know, become this older band. Have they just mellowed with age over time? Uh, or is there something more to that? 
Oh, I, I mean, it's a great question, Landry. And I think those things fit together very well, right? And in the sense of the the live and let live sort of hippie mentality, the band was was headquartered in uh, San Francisco, still is. Although James Hetfield couldn't tolerate living there anymore, he's moved to uh, to Colorado. Uh, but you know, the the atmosphere of being a San Francisco band and and the sort of uh, live and let live and uh, you know try anything and let your freak flag fly sort of mentality of San Francisco certainly. Uh, is is part of that, but of course, part of the uh, the hippie mentality too was always questioning institutions, and so uh, questioning and uh, really brutalizing religious institutions and questioning government institutions. That that all sort of fits uh, with a with a hippie mentality, but it also uh, is not done to the uh, the sounds of uh, you know. Pete Seeger jangling guitar or Kumbaya, you know, it's put forward uh, in a very different way. Uh, and there's also a very prominent anti-war message uh, in particularly early Metallica songs like Fight Fire with Fire and For Whom the Bell Tolls and then Disposable Heroes. But listening to those songs, if you're not listening to the lyrics, uh, all you get is aggression. Uh, but these are anti-war songs that are not, you know, kind of wimpy and uh, and whiny, uh, give peace a chance kind of things. They're, you know, grab you by the lapels and uh, say, stop the madness uh, anti-war songs. So, I mean, I think it all fits together. And I think o over the course of time, uh, you see Hetfield's lyrics develop from the sort of mission statement on Kill Em All of let's spread this gospel to of heavy metal uh, Ride the Lightning is a death-obsessed uh, album. Almost every song on there deals with death, uh, most explicitly uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls and uh, Fade to Black, which is a suicide song, and Creeping Death and Trapped Under Ice about cryonics. So that, that really spoke to my budding existentialist philosopher uh, as a teenager. And then you get into Master of Puppets, where nearly every song deals with manipulation, whether it's uh, the title track, uh, which really is, is, if you look closely at the lyrics, a song uh, about the uh, self-manipulation that occurs uh, under addiction, uh, although it can be interpreted allegorically uh, in other contexts as well. But you have uh, the manipulation uh, of religion in, in Leper Messiah and the uh, manipulation uh, of an institution in Welcome Home Sanitarium. And then, uh, as you mentioned before, and as we were discussing uh, with Chris, you get to more uh, self-reflective and personal-sounding songs uh, when you get to the Black Album and the Load Albums and beyond. I should say also, one thing I appreciate about a lot of Metallica's lyrics is that they seem to strike a nice balance between, uh, or, or maybe a middle ground between, you know, bands that have lyrics that are just completely meaningless or nonsensical and then bands that are just way over the top preachy, like, you know, you listen to a Rage Against the Machine song and it's like a, it's like a le they're lecturing at you. And I, I don't want to be lectured uh, in my heavy metal. But I think Metallica did a nice job of, of kind of finding a middle ground there where they, they were they were subtle, uh, more subtle than a, than a band like uh, Rage Against the Machine's lyrics. But they were also meaningful. And that's that, that's what I like. I think that's kind of the right way to do it. Never sanctimonious. I mean, growing up in the 80s, I mean, uh, 
there was the metal crowd and, you know, I, I was taking classes with the kids who were going to college, but none of them were, were listening to Metallica. They were all listening to U2. And I could never stand U2. I found them sanctimonious and preachy. And I don't know if you ever heard the, uh, the joke, what's the difference between God and Bono, right? Uh, God doesn't walk around Dublin thinking that he's Bono. Uh, that was sort of, you know, I just couldn't stand that. And I, I think Chris is just exactly right that uh, Metallica... And and it's partly because there's no agreed political point of view within the band. It happens to be that Hetfield writes the lyrics, but they're never so on point to a particular moment uh, or particular current political issue uh, that it seems preachy uh, or it seems anything like that. So when you get to the, the most overtly political album, Injustice for All, uh, those songs really, uh, they could be speaking of an earlier time, right? Like Shortest Straw, uh, which really speaks in some ways to the, uh, the Red Scare of the, uh, the 1950s, but uh, is perennial, right? It fit the, uh, the mood of the 80s and it doesn't go away. It seems to uh, fit the, uh, the cancel culture of today, but it's never about a particular politician or a particular... Uh, issues so specifically that you feel like you're being preached at. I'm always curious about what libertarians think about uh, a certain topic because I find it more divisive than it might seem at times, which is something Metallica is is very, very known for uh, today, at least, which is the issue of intellectual property. Uh, so if our fans are not familiar, Metallica was involved heavily and was really critical in the uh and driving the shutdown of file sharing site napster um which was really kind of the the canary in the coal mine for what the sort of music industry was turning into with the uh, digitization and uh which sort of leans into streaming and how people consume the the media that they're listening to so i, I i'm curious specifically from from perhaps you two um you too. That was a good punch. Um, <laughs> bringing it back. Uh, what do you make of Metallica's uh, sort of stance on intellectual property? Do you find it justified or do you think that was a misstep or is there some nuance? And also, do you see any evidence of what you might think in their lyrics and, and how they've done things? Because that's one thing that I I didn't immediately pick up on when I was trying to search for lyrics that had a lot of themes. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's not necessarily there. I don't know. Maybe I, I might be the, the only only libertarian who who's sort of agnostic about intellectual property like i know both sides are really they're really you know <laughs> they dig in their heels uh on these things I, I confess i'm not really sure what i think about intellectual property i can see the merits of both sides of that argument um and you know i i, I you know i think there's probably a place for it but i also think it it definitely does get abused and so what exactly an intellectual property regime should look like ideally I, i'm not really sure that being said though i did respect metallica's position so whether or not they were right or wrong about napster i think they had a point uh and and the the point as i see it is look like we're producing this work you're enjoying it uh you're getting this benefit and so it's it's appropriate to pay us 
like I, I can I totally like I respect that. Um, you know, if if you provide a valuable service for someone, it doesn't seem to me outlandish to ask them to 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 pay you for it. Um, and, and I, you know, I think a lot of people they they didn't like it. I remember Metallica's popularity really took a hit, and I rem I, I also have this this memory. I don't know what it was. It was like. Uh, the Grammys or something like that, where they had the Napster guy like present something and then they cut to Metallica and they were like making a joke about Metallica and they kind of sunk into their seats because they were embarrassed because everybody was was kind of hating on them for their Napster stance. But but I think whether whether or not Napster was was a good thing or a bad thing or whether the intellectual property regime that we have is good or bad. I respect the stance that I, I remember this this quote from Lars. Actually, he says something. He's like, we're not toothpaste. <laughs> like, yeah, like I, he's like he's like he's like we are people who are making something, uh, and like we ought to like we're not like this is me you know putting uh, way too much philosophical window dressing on it, but it's like don't treat us as mere means. Uh, you know we're we're doing something for you, uh, so it's only fair that you do a little something for us. And so I yeah I, I thought that they got a disproportionate amount of hate for their Napster stance. Yeah, I, I largely agree with Chris. Uh, I'm, I'm largely agnostic on intellectual property. I, I think it is property, but I think uh, it, what counts as property itself needs to spontaneously develop and evolve. It, it, it has over time. And, and intellectual property, uh, because it's so technology-based, has to spontaneously develop and evolve and will spontaneously evolve and has spontaneously developed and evolved, you know, more than other things. I mean, I remember very strict prohibitions on what, on what you could photocopy at a certain point, right? And that's loosened up uh, quite a, a lot, right? Uh, now, there's some inside baseball and irony when it, when it comes to Metallica, right? Because they made their, their breakthrough uh, because of underground tape trading, right? There was a, their, their famous demo, uh, No Life to Leather, that spread around the world by one person taping it and passing it to another, and, and they encouraged that. Uh, and uh, back in the, in the 80s, I mean, I go back even further than Chris before cassettes were, were the old LPs. They've, for some reason, uh, enjoyed a renaissance. People like listening to vinyl again. It is richer, but I, I hated the skips and the hisses and all that. Uh, but, you know, uh, sometimes I got my very first uh, taste of Metallica by making a tape of Ride the Lightning from my, my friend's record. And then I bought it, and then I've bought everything and you know, multiple media since. Uh, but that, that was, you know technically uh, a violation at some point, but Metallica had no problem uh, with that. Uh, they also, uh, at various points, encouraged bootlegging of their, uh, of their concerts and sharing that almost all of the Grateful Dead. Uh, so, you know, they've been sort of loose on that in some ways. So what you didn't get from Metallica, and, and you couldn't really expect, was a tight philosophical argument about what intellectual property is and why you're violating it. And, and what really bothered them most, if, if you take a look at the, the interviews, is just the scale that uh, it was going on with, with Napster. It wasn't one buddy making a tape for another, uh, that kind of thing, but it was just spreading uh, the music without any kind of 
uh, recompense, right? So, I mean, that, that, that was the real problem. Uh, also part of the real problem is that the main mouthpiece on the issue for the band was Lars Ulrich, who tends to be, you know, sometimes a bit of a jackass and, and way outspoken and uh, that kind of thing. Uh, so that that's unfortunate. I think from a public relations standpoint, they didn't handle it well. Uh, but I think they, they ultimately did the, the music uh, business a service by making that stance. And what we have now is certainly not as good as it was for artists in the, uh, the 80s or 90s in terms of generating revenue and royalties. Uh, but at least it's something with the streaming services. And uh, I think we've sort of spontaneously evolved where, you know, people are willing to pay for a subscription service or however they stream their music. Uh, and so artists get something, even if it's not as much as they wanted. And I will say too, I, I, you know, I'm sensitive to the ways in which intellectual property, you know, can, can inhibit creativity. This discussion made me think of the, the infamous, I, I don't know if either of you have seen this vanilla ice interview. Does this ring a bell where he he's trying to, he's trying to convince the listeners that he didn't sample what it, it's like a queen song or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. Under pressure, under pressure. Right, right. And he, he's like trying to convince the, uh, he's like, it's a ding. It's not, it's a ding, not a ding. <laughs> like, right. So I don't have to pay That's any royalties is. here. It's like, eh, I don't know about that. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, I can definitely see how overly zealous, uh, you know, IP, IP rules can can inhibit creativity too. I, one, one thing I'll say also, and this is just a small tidbit in, in Metallica's defense uh, I had uh, technically, from the intellectual standpoint, the letter of the law, I had to ask them uh, for permission to quote their lyrics. Uh, and some artists refuse, uh, some charge. Poets are notorious for this, charging money uh, or outright refusing permission uh, for you to quote from their poem. Uh, but they didn't charge me a dime to quote their lyrics. So, you know. It's not like they would have made a fortune off of me and my little book, but you know that that is at least principle that they recognize that. Come on, that's a bullshit thing. I mean, it, it pretty much is a bullshit thing. I think that I should have to uh, ask to quote lyrics, and I think that's something where you see uh, intellectual property law uh, evolve, uh, where it's it, that's going to drop by the wayside completely at some point. But for now, I had to ask, and at least they recognize that this is, you know, the, the guy shouldn't even have to ask. I'm amused to hear that poets are particularly ruthless. Yeah. Here. It just seems <laughs> contrary to, to the spirit of, of poetry. I don't know. They, they are <laughs> no, notoriously so. Sometimes even in, in their wills uh, for the estate, uh, there will be no granting of, uh, of quotation from their poetry. I, I guess some of it has to do with poems being ordinarily very short units. And so to quote the whole poem, you know, I don't know, could potentially take away uh, from, uh, from sales or the original context in which the poem was in a larger work of poetry. Also, lots of poets are just assholes, I guess, you know, who... Uh, well, they just, well, I mean... <laughs> They're not getting paid much, so they're trying to hold on to whatever they're getting. Probably is what is the case. <laughs> yeah, but but and it, it also though I mean the, the usual request for the uh, for the quotation is in a work of criticism, right? So somebody who wants to write 
uh, work on them, and it's not going to be completely uh, flattering, and they want to, you know, limit the way in which they're discussed. I mean, it, it's dumb, but but they do it. Not, I mean, not all poets, but but notoriously some. Right, and if you have a fair use uh, justification for the criticism, it's still on you to prove that if they were to bring a suit against you. So it's really just an an opportunity for them to try and and you know extract as much uh, revenue as they can in via whatever means, most likely. Um, no, that's right, and and fair use is really the operative term there, and and it, it it's a vague term, and it's meant to to change and to evolve and. You know, I find that to be a very libertarian uh, kind of notion, the spontaneity and the uh, open-endedness of the development. We mentioned before the sort of lack of a tight argument or philosophy that Metallica represents um, and how Chris was like, I don't want to get preached at when I'm listening to, you know, my heavy metal and, you know, that the the group is really about sort of loose principles and ideas rather than nuanced, very tightly specific, like even like policy positions or, you know, planks in a in a platform that they're trying to support. You both talk about how that's something that you kind of enjoy about the band. Um, is, is that something that you like about music in general as compared to other media? Because I feel like when you watch a TV show or a movie, it's much easier to come away with saying, like, this is what the point of this piece of media was. There was a sequence of events and framing and you can do that with songs, and there are songs that are very much trying to tell a story with a point, but I feel like in general, there's a bit more of an impressionistic, thematic sense to music, and do you like that about heavy metal, or are, are there any other examples of groups that you think do have that really, really surgical way of writing lyrics that you think might do it differently than Metallica? Yeah, so I mean, I I typically listen to music to to feel rather than to think. Uh, so so I definitely know people they're they're super into lyrics and they like to you know dissect the lyrics and think about them. I like music that just makes me feel a certain way, and you know I confess I I like uh, a lot of you know really heavy bands like deathcore bands, and unless you look up the lyrics. And I have I have years of experience trying to understand the, you know the words, and and I still have trouble uh, without without assistance, um, but I just like it because it makes me feel a particular way, and to me I think that's kind of one of the the unique values of music as opposed to say something like a novel or a movie. So of course those make you feel a certain way, but they also make you think a certain way. And obviously that that has its place. But oftentimes, you know, I just I just want to put on the headphones. Uh, you know, I want to I want to uh I, I don't know, Blair Slipknot or something like that and and you know, just it just takes me away for a while. And I, you know, like I said, different strokes for different folks that, you know, not everybody's going to feel that way about music. I have heard, this is an interesting aside. I feel like this is like kind of flattering. To, so I don't know, but I, I've read things that say the experience that heavy metal uh, listeners get from listening to heavy metal is very similar to the experience that classical music fans get 
And it's, I don't know what it is. It's something about like, you just, it's, it's the music. It's not really the lyrics. It's like the way it makes you feel. And so what I take from this is that, you know, Slipknot listeners are, you know, as sophisticated as like Mozart uh, and Beethoven listeners. That makes me feel good. As someone who doesn't like, really like Mozart, uh, I don't know, never <laughs> saw the appeal. Well, it's interesting you bring that up because I always thought it was odd and I, I can see where people got it. But I think it's a stereotype, you know, that metalheads are, you know, dirty, lazy rebels who, you know, don't care about anything. When in reality, a majority of them want to, you know, follow after the people that they're watching on stage and they devote themselves to highly technical, practiced art forms that are extremely precise in a classical music sense. Like, sh I have played the guitar for many years, but I, you know, I lapse and stuff like that. But I would not call myself, you know, musical or, you know, very technical in any sense. The people I know who play metal are like, I sit down, I practice, I have exercises, there are techniques that I use. It is much more organized than the reputation and aesthetics of metal might likely uh, be or perceived at uh, perceived as by an outsider. Oh, I, th I, I, I say right on uh, with both of you. I mean, I think the the commonality between metal and and classical, aside from the, the technical proficiency, is just that really uh, it is art and not merely entertainment. Right? Lots of uh, of pop music. I mean, with a very loose definition of art counts as art, but it doesn't aspire to uh, anything higher, right? And and to me, metal delivers uh, in a way that classical generally doesn't, aside from opera, if you count that in the, in the classical genre, you don't usually get lyrics, right? I mean, some leader and Schumann leader and uh, Schubert leader and oh, I forget who that is. Uh, you know, you generally don't get lyrics, right? And and so part of what's great with with metal done, uh, well, with Metallica, I'm 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 not going to speak uh, that metal in general is that you can you can take it primarily for the feeling as uh, as Chris does, uh, or you can uh, couple that with the lyrics, or you can look at the lyrics uh, separately. And you know, to me, that that's similar to the way in which uh, when the uh, when the Matrix first came out in the late '90s, early 2000s, plenty of people simply enjoyed it as an action movie, and it's fine to enjoy it as just an action movie. Uh, but uh, you can also reflect on it and and get much more out of it. And uh, as I suggested from from very early on, particularly with the Ride the Lightning album, uh, which is lyrically very well crafted and and death obsessed. Uh, it uh, spoke to me as uh, as the budding young existentialist and and poet, uh, and uh, you know the the, the lyrics uh, are suggestive and they've meant a lot, and you know being authored by a by a real person who himself has changed and developed over time, uh, the music uh, and the lyrics have changed and developed over time, whereas. The writers of a, a film series or a television show uh, may feel an obligation to keep things true to a character or a plot line or storyline or something like that. The individual artist has much more uh, leeway and latitude. And uh, Bob Dylan fans don't make don't appreciate it very much when I make the comparison, but there, there are comparisons to be made. 
between Hetfield uh, and Bob Dylan for some of the uh, the changes and some of the fan reactions over time, and and also quite frankly uh, for the voice. They don't sound alike, but neither of them has anything like the classical singing voice, and both of them have made a virtue out of the sort of you know not great voice that they have, uh, and this is this is what great artists can do. What do you think the most libertarian song that Metallica has is? And your favorite. I'm just curious about your favorite. I always want to know. And why? Well, so uh, I'll go first, I suppose. Uh, I'll, I'll say probably the, the most libertarian song that they have is uh, Eye of the Beholder uh, off of Injustice for All, which is very much... Uh, in some ways, uh, it's a Cliff Notes version of Mills on Liberty. It's talking about freedom of expression uh, and the value of uh, freedom of expression, even with what you disagree with, or especially with what you disagree with. That energy derives from both the plus and negatives, as the as the lyrics go. Uh, so, so you know, maybe that's the most libertarian in the sense of really. Uh, putting forward explicitly the virtue of liberty. There are other songs that are more expressive of individualism. Uh, you could talk about Don't Tread on Me, notoriously, uh, as uh, you know, capturing uh, the non-aggression principle or something like that. Uh, but you know, th- there, there's plenty to say. But if I had to pick one, particularly one that's not uh, you know a, a well-known song, I'd say Eye of the Beholder, if somebody wants to to check that out. And I mean, for a personal uh, favorite, uh, I would just go back to Ride the Lightning and and the song uh, that first spoke to me is Fade to Black, uh, which is basically uh, a suicide song, but one uh, that uh, manages not to catalyze despair, uh, but instead hope. And, And it had that uh, effect for me as a depressed teenager, and I know it's had that effect for uh, many, many other fans. Yeah, great questions. I don't know. I, maybe so. Here's maybe a bit of a curveball for most libertarian. Uh, I might say the Unforgiven, uh, because that's all. It's sort of about the the dangers and the harms of being deprived of freedom. I really, I really like the the lyrics and the sound. Of the Unforgiven, so I would I would recommend that to all libertarians. Favorite, that's a tough one. I mean, I like Creeping Death, in part because it's one of the very few sort of like Passover appropriate heavy metal songs. That's like a very <laughs> that's a very short list. Um, also, I, I don't know. This is just because this song. This was just one of the the songs that I would play all the time in my youth. One, like that's just it's just mm. awesome. It's just an awesome yeah. song. Uh, so yeah, so I would, I would put those two up as, uh, as some of my favorites. Thanks for listening. As always, the best way to keep in touch with us and get more pop and lock content is to follow us on Twitter. You can find us at the handle at pop and lock pod. That's pop the letter N lock with an E like the philosopher pod. Make sure to follow us on Apple podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time.